Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview with Alaska State Representative Matt Clayman. Representative Clayman followed his dream and came to Alaska in 1980. He was raised in Dallas, Texas. He served in the Anchorage Assembly. He was the chair in 2008. He was also the acting mayor of Anchorage when Mark Begich became the U.S. Senator. Um, He has been a lawyer for 29 years and uh, has been working on modernizing Alaska's marriage statutes, divesting from Russia over the war in Ukraine um, through the PDF Board of Trustees, the PFD Board of Trustees, and uh, he's working on changing the Constitution in Alaska to limit the legislative session to 90 days. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing a conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the concepts for comprehending issues. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism, so on with the show. Our 11th show is with Matt Clayman. This show is about 40 minutes long. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, thank you once again for listening to Join the Conversation here on KSUA 91.5 FM. We're up here in Fairbanks, Alaska, and uh, the radio station is here at our campus, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And we have a very special guest with us today. We are going to be chatting with Alaska State Representative Matt Clayman. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Yes, sir. So. Uh, we have uh, Matt Clayman. He represents uh, West Anchorage in the Alaska State Legislature. As everyone knows, he's one of 40. Um, on the House side, there's 20 state senators. Um, Representative Clayman, uh, you came to Alaska to follow your dream in 1980. Uh, tell us about cooking in remote mining camps. Well, for the folks in Fairbanks, we were working actually on a tributary of Birch Creek. Uh, remote place and they were doing some preliminary exploration work and I was the guy in camp that in addition to cooking was a bit of a jack of all trades I was asked to do some kind of rough construction to clear some brush and make it possible to have an airstrip so they could get in with a fixed wing and not just with a helicopter and you know, you're cooking for a for a crew of folks that are working there we had actually two shifts running a night shift and a day shift and so we had people working 12 hour shifts and geologists that were out in the field looking for looking for other things that might be interesting to explore. And so that was a that was a real first exposure to Alaska and just a I fell in love with Alaska then and it's never gone away. So you came up here in 1980 and then you went back to Texas. You're from Dallas, Texas originally and studied law uh, down at the University of Texas. 
Um, my first question, just out of curiosity, you know, just if we were two buddies chatting on the train or something, why doesn't Alaska have a law school? I think Alaska doesn't have a law school in part because starting a law school is a, there's a significant funding part of that. It's it's not kind of similar to a medical school. You can't just have a law. I guess you could have a law school with. 20 students in each student body and a small number of faculty. But generally, when you look at law schools, you're looking at a small law school is three to 400 students in the law school. And so the investment in terms of faculty members and everything else is fairly significant. I think that's the, the big reason why Alaska hasn't, hasn't gone that direction. I think the other part is that historically, we haven't had a lot of difficulty attracting lawyers to come to Alaska. So the law schools around the country have been able to supply uh, lawyers, as many lawyers as we've needed. There's been, I think, some questions in more recent years about, in terms of hiring and folks coming in and joining the bar, whether there may be some growing concerns about the number of lawyers that are available and coming to Alaska, but at least for a long time, we didn't have any trouble attracting lawyers to come to the state. And Alaska, before it was a uh, state, they were using Oregon territorial case law. Um, and for some reason, like UAF and UAA, when they're recruiting uh, to have, you know, like political science students or whoever go to law school, um, it's always like a, a couple in Oregon. Like for some reason, uh, Alaska and Oregon have some kind of, is it like Willamette or there's another, I think uh, Senator Murkowski went to law school in Oregon. I mean, there's a connection there. Um, do you have any idea why does it go back to Alaska originally having Oregon territorial case law and common law and so then that's where you would go study if you were going to be a practicing attorney in alaska well this is actually a place in which my understanding is a little different than yours i i think that when we were territorial days we were subject to we were entirely a matter of federal law and federal law as it applies to territories i do think in the early days of statehood when we adopted a after the code, we largely took the Oregon statutory code and kind of brought that in as the Alaska statutes. But then over time, we've gradually adjusted and changed so that it looks more and more like our own and not so much like Oregon. So at least it's never been my understanding that there was some Oregon territorial law that applied. Somebody that studied this more than I might might give you a more learned and more researched answer. But I always understood that Oregon was a lot of the model for the early Alaska statutes in our our statutory structure, but then as as we've gotten older and more mature, we've started creating more of our own laws. For example, in 1980, we rewrote the criminal code in a massive criminal code revision, and and so you can go back and actually have one of that criminal code revision manuals. It's a three ring binder with with a lot of comments about the history of the Alaska uh, criminal code and the proposed changes and where those came from. So while we're you know in attorney talk, uh, legal chat, um, you uh, were the president of the Alaska Bar Association. So right. I mean, you're certainly speaking from experience. Um, but the the fun little ditty that stands out to me um, in your political career, you're you want you have a constitutional amendment to limit the legislative session to 90 days. Now right. that's just that's just plain old fun that you're just trying to change the constitution. It sounds like a Beatles song, but uh, in looking at what it actually does, 
because Alaska is kind of like a quasi citizens legislature and then also a professional one at the same time. Sometimes doesn't uh, the 90 days, isn't that not enough? Uh, I mean, if you look at how uh, the governor called you guys back into session a bunch of times last year on the budget, do you want to just cap it at 90 or it, it, it allows it to go to 120? Well, Historically, it's, it's an interesting process in Alaska because when we first became a state and, and approved the constitution, there was provisions for the legislature, but there was no set legislative term. And some of the legislative terms were actually surprisingly short because especially in the 1960s, the difficulty was you could meet, but there was no money to distribute and there was no money for to pay to be down in Juneau to meet. And so the, the actual reality of getting the legislature to convene was, was, and of course, Alaska Airlines didn't fly as many times today as they do today, but they, but actually meeting was financially a challenge. And when you started doing budget stuff, we didn't have lots of money to, to spend. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of effort to changing statutes. And all that changed when they discovered oil in Prudhoe Bay. And when the oil started flowing and there started coming money into the state government, then there, then there started to be uh, money to distribute and it suddenly the legislative sessions got gradually longer. And that caused the, the public um, a move to amend the constitution. You can only amend the constitution either by, by getting a two thirds vote in both houses. You can't do it by citizen initiative. So there was a movement to amend the constitution and put a 120 day limit in that was in reaction to oil money being there and they couldn't get the, get decisions made. Then about 12 or 14 years ago, there was a citizens initiative that was passed as a ballot measure to change the statute. And that initiative changed it from 90 days, from 120 days in the statute to 90 days in the statute. But that initiative doesn't have the power to change the constitution. So the Alaska constitution still says 120 days. And even though the, the 90 day initiative passed, I think by 60 or more percent of the vote, that doesn't have the power to change the constitution. And so until the constitution changes, the constitution can change controls over a statute. So there was some early efforts when that initiative passed to get out in 90 days. Uh, I think they may have succeeded two or three times, but in more recent years, we've gone to the 120 days. And the only time we finished in record time was the first year of the pandemic in 2020 when we finished in less than 90 days, but that was more driven by pandemic realities and everybody wanted to get out of town. Um, so that's the, that's kind of the, the structure. I would largely say that the, a lot of the special sessions, particularly last summer, was dri were driven more by the fact that the governor didn't like the answers he was getting from the legislature. The governor kept calling us back, but if you look and see what actually passed most of these special sessions, very little passed any of the special sessions because the governor, although he has the power to call a special session, he can't force us to do anything. And I think in the end, the legislature didn't support the things the governor was asking for. So you're the minority leader in the house. And majority, uh, I'm the majority whip. The majority whip. Right. Okay, and then your relationship with the governor is a lot smoother than, let's say, somebody whose brother's running against them for governor, like a, a Begich or someone. I mean, can you speak to your relationship with the with the governor? I mean, are you guys having, a, you know, afternoon tea all the time, or it's only when you have to discuss stuff? You know, I, 
I think I have a, a good working relationship with the governor, but I can't say that I see him very often. When I was first elected, I, I when I was first elected, I came to, I think he invited everybody in the legislature to his Anchorage office. And so before we even went to Juneau, I went by the governor's office and met with him for a while in his office. And then other than occasionally seeing him at things like the state of the state address or once or twice, maybe briefly at the governor's mansion, I really hadn't, didn't sit down with him or meet with him for any purpose until last year. So it was my third, his third year in the governor's office that I actually had a a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him and the members of the staff. And, and so we, and we met a few times with some of the house leadership last year, but I haven't, I actually, other than seeing him at the governor's mansion when Miss America was there, I haven't seen him at all this year. So you're a Democrat in Anchorage, but the house has uh, a majority of Republicans, yet you're still the majority whip? So Alaska is the only legislative body in the country and of the 50 states, we're the only legislative body in the country that is controlled by a tripartisan majority of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And it's actually been that way. This is the sixth year that there has been a tripartisan majority that is, in, that is the majority in the Alaska House. And for each of those six years, we've been the only tripartisan majority in any house of the legislature in the country that's in control. That is so, the coolest word I've heard ever, tripartisan. So you as a Democrat have gotten these Republicans to vote for you to be in a leadership position because, I mean, it's all about working together. Alaska is very independent and uh, party politics doesn't play as much a role as it does, like, let's say, in California or New York. But, you know, as a political science student, it's absolutely fascinating that you can be majority whip as a Democrat in the lower house that's dominated by Republicans. I mean, you guys must uh, just be friends. It must be like a friendly environment. Well, we, I mean, the, the majority coalition is more Democrats than Republicans and always has been for the last six mm. years. So, so our coalition has every Democrat in the house is a part of the coalition. Uh, I think every independent in the, in the house is a part of the coalition. And we've always had, had some of the Republican Republicans in the coalition. So if you, if you look at the total numbers, if you look at the minority, the minority is 100% Republican. Gotcha. Okay, so then the biggest story, uh, I mean, because we're, we're chatting politics, uh, like we both know about it. The biggest story in Alaska is that uh, Congressman Don Young has passed on, uh, the Dean right. of the House. Um, he got elected in a special, session, a special election in 73, Nick Begich uh, beat him. He was the last person uh, to beat Don Young. And in national political news, I mean, you've got everyone in uh, their mother, let's say, running for this seat. Uh, Sarah Palin is a, said it would be an honor to serve. I think you have uh, Nick. Is she Begich. actually announced that she's running? Well, I think, I mean, if you actually look at it, it looks like she wants them to recruit her to do it. And it would be like her, and uh, you, you know, um, coming in and saving the day. But uh, maybe I should give her a call. Maybe you should run for the seat, uh, Mr. Clayman. Uh, I, I mean, it comes with perks. You get a parking spot at the Capitol, up on Capitol Hill. And uh, uh, there's a weight room and a gym I think you get to use as a congressman. So it's not all bad. 
but uh, uh, how big of an I'm, influence? I'm not running for that. I'm not running for the U.S. House seat. Neither in okay, the special. I, I couldn't get you to. I couldn't get you to bite on that. Um, no. How important uh, of a role? I mean, is Don Young in uh, Alaska politics? I mean, he's like a Mount Rushmore legendary. Well, you know, he's he's a, done a tremendous amount for Alaska in his 49 years in the state house or in the U.S. House. And part of that is because he's actually built the relationships that you need to succeed. And and part of that's a function that he's been there that long. I often often folks will say, well, why aren't you interested in running for it? And I said, well, I'm 62 years old and Don Young lived to be 88 and he had served 49 years in that seat. So if I if I were to be elected at age that I'd be 63 by the time elect, I was elected, if I served 25 years I, and died at 88 or, was, or retired at 88, I would serve half as long as Don Young in the US House. And just on the, from my perspective, you need somebody that can be in, the, be in that role for a number of years and build the relationships and bring the experience and work with folks to be able to be effective. It's, it's different in the Senate where you have two senators and that's 1 50th of the entire US Senate. We have one representative that's 1 435th of the US House. And so the Representative Young's ability to influence the, the House, if you kind of look at his history, it started growing about 10 or 15 years into the work. And certainly, yeah, I mean, it's based on seniority. So uh, with him being the Dean of the House and, you know, him along with Ted Stevens and uh, Murkowski, they were known uh, for bringing home the bacon or pork barrel politics or earmarking, right. whatever you want to call it. And whoever becomes this uh, Alaska congressperson, you're now, you know, 435th. You'd be the newest House member, not the oldest. Right. In a place where seniority matters. Right, and that's that's why I think we really need to look look for somebody to, to be able to to continue some of the influence that Representative Young had. We need to be looking for a representative who can really who's going to be prepared to be there for a while and build the relationships and build the experience that you need to succeed. Now, I served in city government um, here down in Los Angeles, and so your acting mayoralship of Anchorage is fascinating to me. So you were in the Anchorage Assembly, you got elected in 2007. Now the Anchorage Assembly is like the borough system. It's like our North Star Borough up in uh, Fairbanks where it's a, a county and a school board and the dog catcher and the water board, everything all in one. I mean, it's a, talk, talk a little bit about that. It's a fascinating system, the borough system. Well, we're a little bit different than Fairbanks because Anchorage is the only municipality in the state. And when Anchorage voted to become a municipality and switch from being a city and borough, at one point Anchorage was a city and borough. And so there was, there was borough government and city government and they weren't just like the Fairbanks and the North Star Borough. The city of Fairbanks is not the same place as the North Star Borough. So you've got a Fairbanks city assembly, as I understand it, plus you've got an got a North Star Borough Assembly. Anchorage, we don't, we're unified, so we only have the Municipal Assembly that, that does both. Really? So it's like San Francisco, where the city and the county are the same? Like, if you're the mayor of San Francisco, you're also a county supervisor type of thing. So you combine both of them in Anchorage? Right. Anchorage is unified. 
the municipalities unified, the borough and the city unified. So how many are in the Anchorage Assembly? How many people serve? Well, today there's 11, but in as of the April election, there will be 12. Oh. They okay. added an assembly seat just recently. So you, uh, when you took over as the acting mayor of Anchorage, you were um, inheriting the gavel from Mark Begich, who became the U.S. Senator. And then after you, Dan Sullivan took over, right? Right. And I became acting mayor because I was the chair of the Anchorage Assembly and pursuant to city charter, if the mayor resigns or otherwise uh, dies or otherwise is no longer serving, it provides that the, that the assembly chair becomes the acting mayor. And so I was the first acting mayor in Anchorage history since, since unification. Well, that's fun. That's a, a neat uh, gavel to put up on your uh, bookshelf and uh, have engraved. Let's talk a little bit about um, your legislation and bills. You have uh, the House Bill 62, which uh, modernizes- I just wanna take, I wanna roll back just a second. Just Do a it. little tidbit that you might find interesting just in terms of, so here we are, this is, this is uh, the 24th of March. And this week on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in the, in the Senate judiciary, they've been, the US Senate judiciary, they've been questioning Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And so part of what, part of the tradition in Alaska, not tradition, but one of the places we've actually been very successful is a destination as a bar convention destinations, we've had great success inviting and having US Supreme Court justices come to Alaska to speak to our annual bar convention. So I opened up the opened up the bar, the bar rag, which is the newspaper they send out to bar members. And I opened up the current issue and I looked, was flipping through the back pages, and there's a little window that says keynote speaker for the October uh, Alaska Bar Convention. DC Circuit Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will be here in October to speak the Alaska Bar Convention. They had booked her to come and speak before she was nominated by President Biden to be uh, the next U.S. Supreme Court Justice, and so she would be she would be joining uh, a long list now of justices that have come to Alaska and spoken at the Bar Convention, and then taken a few days afterwards to tour Alaska. These and these actually include. Justice Breyer, now retiring, Justice O'Connor, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Scalia. Um, let's see, did I say Sandra Day O'Connor? Justice O'Connor spoke to the bar convention. I'd actually have to go back and look through the list, but when I was president of the bar, Ruth Bader Ginsburg came and spoke to the bar convention and, and we got to spend some time with her during that visit. And so it's just a great, great privilege for Alaska when Supreme Court justices come and speak to our bar convention. We've had other justices, Justice Sotomayor came and spoke at, a, I think at a women's law event and not at the bar convention, but we've, we've had a great success attracting Supreme Court justices to Alaska. And I think it's, I think it's both the diversity of our bar, but also our, our scenic beauty that makes us a destination for justices to get away from Washington. Well, that's certainly a good uh, parlay into my next question. You're making, um the marriage uh, industry in Alaska a little bit easier. Uh, you wanna modernize Alaska's marriage statutes with House Bill 62 um, to make uh, Alaska a destination uh, wedding, just like Florida, just like Hawaii. And it, it deals with uh, the witness, the 
So you want to eliminate there having to be a witness to these people getting married? We want to change the requirements. So the first thing that is important to note is Alaska is already a destination wedding place. It, this, this legislation is not trying to turn it into one that it isn't already. It turns out that according to the division or the vital statistics, about 10% of weddings that occur in Alaska are between two people who are out of state residents. And that's been the case for a number of years. So when we look at this, the statistics, roughly there's roughly around 5,000 weddings per year in Alaska. And of those about 500, and that's been true up until the pandemic, that numbers dipped with the pandemic, but up until the pandemic, it was roughly 500 a year of the weddings were coming from out of state with two couples. And so the typical couple that comes up would, would come to Alaska and they just be on their own kind of two or three week honeymoon vacation and wedding. And oftentimes they wouldn't bring any family or friends. They just fly up here and find somebody that would perform a ceremony. And sometimes they would want to get their wedding on the, you know, at the end of a trail they hike to, or they might helicopter up to a mountaintop or, or get a plane ride to a glacier. And, but they'd go to these remote locations to have these spectacular wedding pictures taken and they'd get everything planned and then they'd get a photographer lined up and then say, what do we need? And they say, oh, by the way, you also have to bring two witnesses to the ceremony. So then they'd be asked to go recruit a couple of people uh, that didn't, they didn't know from Adam who would not, not just sign the paperwork, but actually hike with them if they were hiking and have to get on the helicopter and they'd have to pay the extra seats on the helicopter to bring the witness. Mm. And, and so we heard about this, we learned about this from wedding photographers that said, this is just a little crazy. People are like getting, going to Girdwood and getting married and they're waiting for a helicopter flight and then they're running around seeing, can I, look, we need two people to get on the plane to go with us for the wedding. And it turns out the wedding witness requirement dates back to the, the 12, 1300s in England when, they, when the church was documenting weddings and there were issues about polygamy and claims about weddings that may or may not have occurred. So they created a witness requirement to increase the, the sense there'd be somebody that say, yeah, they really did get married or they didn't get married. Uh, and that, that need for two witnesses is really kind of not as strong as it was. Arguably, there's no need for it at all. The, I think over 20 states don't have a witness requirement. Alaska has two witnesses. And what we've actually worked out through working with, with legislators in the House, and I think we'll we continue that effort in the Senate. What we've got, there's always the person that performs the ceremony, the minister, uh, a judge, if the judge is doing it, you can get a, a special marriage, marriage commissioner license for three days so you can marry, perform your friend's wedding. But the person that performs the ceremony obviously has to be there. Uh, so that really is one witness to the ceremony. And what we've, what we've done with the bill is we've added a person that we call a verifier, a second person that signs the certificate that will acknowledge that they actually they talk to the people that are getting married. They said they did intend to marry each other. And then they also sign the wedding certificate. So now if, if the legislation passes, you'll have the, the person that performs the ceremony call it the person that solemnizes the marriage, plus a verifier who doesn't have to actually witness the ceremony they will assign the certificate, provide their name, address, and phone number, and actually their email address as well. But the idea that if they questioned these people really get married, you'll be able to find the people who, who were around at the time and can confirm that. And it's a contrast to the current scenario where 
the person that performs the ceremony signs and puts their name and address, but the two witnesses don't even need to print their name. So the wedding, wedding certificates that are signed today under current law, you've got the, the person performing the ceremony signs, but the other two people just then provide information. The other two people, if you didn't know who they were, you wouldn't even necessarily know who the signature was. And there is some weird thing that's in the law right now where the legal age to marry in Alaska is 14 years old, and then it would be bumped up to 16. I mean, that must go back to medieval England also. Like, who's getting married at 14 years old? I wanted to, like, I don't know, ride my bike and play Nintendo at 14. I shouldn't have been getting married. Uh, does your bill change that? It does change that. It's interesting because we introduced legislation a few years ago to change the marriage age, and it really got a very poor reception in the legislature and committees. We couldn't move it out of committees. And so, so we didn't introduce the legislation again. And then when we had the, the marriage witness bill on the floor, Representative Rasmussen, also from West Anchorage, she introduced an amendment to, to make it take out the 14 and 15 year old marriage option. And, and that passed with, I think it passed with 36 to three in support of the amendment on the house floor. And so, so not as original plan of the bill, but I actually think it's great. I, I was opposed to this whole teen marriage idea, not teen because 19 year old and 18 year old is still a teenager, but the child marriage provisions, I've been in favor of eliminating those for a long time. And so this doesn't completely eliminate child marriage it, at 16 and 17, a couple, I, they could get married with parental consent, but that's, that's what the, that's the change in the bill. And that's been, quite popular and people have been really pleased to see us take those steps. So a couple other things, I know I only have you for a few more minutes. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the role of party politics in getting elected, um, how strong the Democratic Party is up in, uh, in Juneau, in Alaska. Um, and I you know, was doing my homework and snooping around your campaign finance reports I mean, you got uh, you know nearly you know over seventy thousand dollars from labor, um, sixty-eight thousand dollars in the last election from lawyers, but uh, only six thousand dollars from the party. Like, why is there not more involvement with the with the? And that's on both sides of the aisle. Like, why does Alaska not have strong political parties? You know, I'm not quite sure where you're counting your numbers, but. The figures you're reflecting of sixty something thousand dollars from lawyers and seventy thousand from labor it sounds like a lot more than I got in any particular election year. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was on open secrets. But I mean, just it, let's say those figures are wrong. It, the uh, the party is not that involved in the campaigns, are they? Well, the party is involved in the campaigns, but under the way the campaign finances are structured we really need to reach out and raise money on our own. The party is limited, the party by, by, the, by the state of Alaska law is limited in how much money they can give to a candidate. So the, so the party is limited to a maximum of $10,000 to a candidate. And- Even and for that, like governor or, it, 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 I mean, you're running for you know, state house and they can only give you 10 grand when, it, I mean, if you look at California or New York, I mean, it, you have to kiss up to the party to get elected. It's as simple as that. So, you know, that's a question. I, I'd have to look into what the number is for the governor, right? I, 
I know we are debating changes because of recent court decisions taking out some of the individual limits, but the practical answer is we work carefully with the party. The party, and I think the Republican Party as well, has a lot of resources, including databases and different ways to identify voters and target voters with both phone calls and emails and mail communications. And so we work with the party, but as a practical matter, what both the Democratic Party, which I'm very familiar with, and the Republican Party, but they're aware of which candidates are raising more money than other candidates. So a person like me, who, as you can see from the reports, is pretty effective at raising money from donors, the party typically looks at me and says, well, he's probably going to do okay raising most of his money on his own. And sometimes they actually call me and say, can you call some of your donors and get them to give money to the party, which I'm usually quite happy to do. And, and then, then the party will sometimes look at the candidates. They may not raise as much money and try to help those candidates out. The first year that I ran for the state house in 2014, the party gave me more assistance than in subsequent years. And that was because I, they recognized that I was in a closer race. And so they had invested more resources in my race. So the party is definitely very involved and we coordinate with, with as a Democrat, I certainly coordinate a lot with the, the Democratic Party, and I know my Republican colleagues certainly do their share of coordination with the Republican Party as well. Now, do you miss local government as compared to state government? I mean, it's two different uh, beasts altogether. Uh, there's parts that I there's parts that I miss and parts that I don't miss. I, I certainly one of the nicest parts about local government, you know, when I was on the Anchorage Assembly, we met on Tuesday nights, and so and and the meeting started at five o'clock. So I'd go through my regular day and kind of wind down in the in the mid-afternoon and get an hour or two off before the assembly met but then I'd be I'd be starting assembly meetings at five and we'd finish by 11 and except under unusual circumstances and so from a family perspective you know well dad's gone on Tuesday night but now in Juneau and of course our my kids are are now adults and so they they only visit so we don't see them in the same way as when they were in, when I was on the Anchorage Assembly, but uh, I was home the other six nights of the week. And, and that's a very different deal. So I, I, miss the, I miss the convenience of the Anchorage Assembly. And, and I think sometimes we, the Anchorage Assembly, at least when I was on it, we were pretty collegial and we did a good job of finding compromises and, and work through things. And so there's some days when I miss the way we worked on the Assembly and there's other parts about the state legislature that I certainly like a lot better I've got a great staff here that they they do a great job of preparing me for the work I have to do and they do research on bills and they they do enormous work helping me strategize things and, and get things going and and so there's a whole work we have that we're able to do here that given a lot of the policy issues that are much more in depth that it, it's just great to have have folks to help my work out and then in terms of being all in the capital together I like the fact that I don't have to call somebody like on the assembly if I wanted to meet somebody we had to schedule time and meet whereas here I can just go down the hall and find another legislator and you know you see see grabbing lunch you'll run into somebody and you can schedule a caucus meeting on pretty short notice so there's a lot of great things about being in the legislature that I like better than being on the assembly but you know they, they both have they both had they both both been great experiences and glad to be serving. Certainly. Um, and then the the one question, uh, a couple more questions, and I know you have a committee meeting to go to. Um, yeah. The one question that uh, comes up. About five more minutes and we should probably wind up. Perfect. So uh, 
the it's been on the ballot six times about moving the capital from Juno to Willow, Juno to Fairbanks, Juno to anywhere but Juno. Um, it, I mean, does that come up a lot? Is let, let's say you're your constituency. Does that really come up? I mean, do you get letters on that? Like uh, the capital should be in West uh, Anchorage so I could walk to the meeting. Um, I mean, it is the one thing in Alaska politics that has been on the ballot more than anything else is moving the capital from Juneau. You know, it, it, it comes up, but not very frequently. And then it depends upon who's writing just because we see where folks write from. Interestingly enough, from House District 21, and House District 21 is that more people travel through House District 21 than any other House District in the state. And the reason is because the Anchorage Airport is completely enclosed in House District 21. So anybody coming to Alaska on an airplane, unless they're just going to Southeast, anybody that lands in Anchorage is coming through House District 21. And I don't get much from folks in, in our district saying, oh, you need to move the capital up to the rail bill. They, there seems to be general support for keeping the capital in Juneau. I periodically get emails from folks and sometimes some calls from folks, uh, a lot from the Matsu Valley, not that many anymore, but when I get when I get emails about moving the capital, they're usually coming from two areas, the Matsu Valley and from the Kenai Peninsula. I, I really get almost nothing from Fairbanks saying move the capital. And I get very, very few from Anchorage. Occasionally I'll get folks complaining from Anchorage, but that's that's more than the exception. Most of these, most of the emails we get, and again, I think early on when I, this is my eighth year, I think we saw more of that, but in recent years, we, we just don't see that much. It's interesting. And then the final question, and uh, then go govern, uh, you know, as uh, you're in the government, so you should be doing some governance, but the final question, Anchorage in 1992 almost got the Winter Olympics. They lost it to Lilyhammer. Um, there has been a, uh, a movement to bring the Winter Olympics to Anchorage again. Um, up in Fairbanks, there's a, a movement to have it be Anchorage and Fairbanks that hosts the Winter Olympics. Um, I mean, it, it seems like the issue is how do we pay for it? Uh, but from your perspective, you're the former mayor of Anchorage. Uh, you've served in the house. Uh, you've been around you know, since 1980 up in Alaska, how realistic is it that we're going to get the Winter Olympics if we try hard enough? Well, I guess <laughs> I have to say that that's, I, I kind of want to turn that back to the Winter Olympics and the people that organize the Winter Olympics, because what I see, I mean, even this year with China and what, what I've seen with some of the recent Winter Olympics, there's been there's so much pressure coming from the Olympic Committee or the, the International Olympic Committee to make these, these massive investments in infrastructure to bring the Olympics to a community. And, and you read about after the fact, even, even some big cities that have made massive investments in the Olympics that 10 years later, they're kind of looking around saying, we kind of, we kind of overdid this and we were a little too, a little too ambitious and a little too aggressive on all the work that we did. And, and, and those were big cities and big places that had a lot more of a tax base to absorb the cost of drawing the Winter Olympics. And I look at, I look at Anchorage and I think, 
and even if we paired with Fairbanks, the Olympic Committee would have to come and say, we want something that's a little bit more of an organic approach to the Winter Olympics. So it didn't involve hundreds of thousands or hundreds of billions of dollars of construction. That's kind of interesting because it's sort of a one-time construction that may not have a, a purpose going forward. And so I'd love to see the Olympics in Alaska. And I think we could do a great job hosting them without building a lot of massive infrastructure. But I suspect that in the competition to get the games, the Olympic Committee wouldn't be interested on, on our idea of a Winter Olympics. I think it would be more true to the spirit of the Olympics, but I don't think it would be, I think it'd be difficult. We'll just put all the infrastructure for the winter sports at UAF and UAA. So all our students can use them after the, uh, the Olympics uh, leave town. So uh, we'll figure it out. We have okay. 20, 2038, I think is the, the, do, the date everyone's shooting for. So, but uh, Representative Matt Clayman, I do wanna thank you for coming on and doing the show. Thank you for being part of this. Um, you have been uh, a, a wonderful uh, guest to interview. Uh, we got to cover it all um, from moving the capital to Juneau to Winter Olympics to uh, legal talk. So it's been wonderful. Everyone, you're listening to KSUA 91.5 FM, our college radio station here at UAF at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And uh, thank you very much, uh, sir, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here and a great afternoon. You too. Thank you very much. Okay. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.